You didn't know Paul had so much power, did you? He comes out here and points at the screen, and like that, it happens. He does that with the choir every Sunday, though, don't you, Paul? By the way, the uh, greetings from the youngsters last week. I, I noticed that one, Kirky Livingston. Now, we have a family in our church, the Kirk Livingstons. I didn't know they had a child named Kirky, so you might just want to ask them if they have... Uh, another child that we've not met before and see if they would introduce you to Kirky Livingston. Would you do that, please? I would appreciate that very much. Now would you open your Bible with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As we look today at our text in the first 11 verses of this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, entitled, Take It to Court. Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, <clears throat> are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren that brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Actually then, it is already a deceit for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you worship you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. A popular television program a few years ago used to end its shows that were based around the court with the notion that if somebody does you wrong, don't take it into your own hands, take it to court. You remember that? That was the attitude in Corinth long before that television show was around. The Christians in the church at Corinth, who were very tolerant of immorality in their church, were quick to go to court over some relatively minor problem that arose. In the paragraph we've read, the Apostle Paul actually rebukes them for their insolence and their arrogance. He says, does any of you dare to go to law? If Paul could say that to us and not write it in the letter as he has, I think we would hear something in his voice approaching anger. For this is another example of the leaven of sin from their old way of life that they have brought into their new relationship with God. 
Now I say it's from their old way of life because of the manner in which those people lived in the city of Corinth and frankly throughout the Roman Empire in that day. John MacArthur summarizes it pretty well when he says the legal situation in Corinth probably was much as it was in Athens where litigation was a part of everyday life. It had become a form of challenge, even entertainment. When a problem arose between two parties that they could not settle between themselves, the first recourse was arbitration. Each party was assigned a disinterested private citizen as an arbitrator. <clears throat> and the two arbitrators, along with a neutral third person, would attempt to resolve the problem. If they failed, the case was turned over to a court of 40 who assigned a public arbitrator to each party. Interestingly, MacArthur says, every citizen had to serve as a public arbitrator during the 60th year of his life. If public arbitration failed, the case went to a jury court composed of from several hundred to several thousand jurors. Can you imagine how long it would take to pick that kind of a jury under our legal system? Every citizen over 30 years of age was subject to serving as a juror, either a party to a loss, either as a party to a lawsuit or as an arbitrator or as a juror. Most citizens regularly were involved in legal proceedings of one sort or another. Well, that's an interesting snapshot of the pagan legal system in the Roman Empire. Very weighty and complex and far-reaching, and one in which many people were involved. Now, along with that system of law and court, the Jews had their own thing going underneath Roman law. The Romans allowed them to carry on this way. For centuries, Jews had settled all their questions and disputes privately or in synagogue courts. It was considered a form of blasphemy for the Jews to go before the Gentiles. Both Greek and Roman rulers had allowed the Jews to continue that practice of having their own court system, even outside of Palestine. Under Roman law, Jews could virtually try every offense and give almost any kind of a sentence, except the sentence of death, as we see in the case of Jesus' trial. Because Christians were considered by the Romans to be a Jewish sect, the Corinthian believers were probably free to settle their disputes among themselves, as the Apostle Paul suggests here. What I want you to grasp here in, in this paragraph that we've read is that believers are called out of the world to a lifestyle that is distinctive and holy. The Apostle Paul in chapter 5 dealt with the matter of immorality in the church. Now he goes on to deal with another kind of leaven, of sin, that was in the church. It was the disgraceful kinds of lawsuits that they were bringing against one another as an expression of their selfishness, showing that their lifestyle was unfit for that of a child of God. 
the Apostle Paul yanks them, as it were, out of their lethargy about this. He wants them to know that God has called them to be saints. God has called them to be separated from the world, to a lifestyle that is distinctive, that is different from what they had lived in the past, to a holy life. And so he expresses the problem, first of all. The problem that he addresses in this paragraph is that of them taking other believers to court for merely petty causes. Christian brothers were seeking legal remedy, it seems, for these minor offenses within the pagan legal system. Their issues were not spiritual issues, it was very temporal issues. He calls them things pertaining to this life, you notice. The word he uses there is the Greek word pragma. And I, I say that word so that you can hear the word pragmatic in it. They were suing one another over the pragma, the pragmatic things of life, unimportant things relatively. And while Paul does not belittle the secular courts here, while he does not show disrespect for the pagan court system, he shows that the believers have no reason really to take these things to that system. So what were they to do? Well, he tells them what they were to do. They were to set up their own system to handle these kinds of issues. He warns them that if they went out to the pagan court system, there would be certain detrimental results in their lives, at least four of them. The first result was that it degraded their testimony. We see this reflected in what he says in verses 1 and 6. He says, how dare you go out there before the world, as it were, and air your dirty laundry. It degrades your testimony to do that as believers in Jesus Christ. Imagine how the unbelievers would have interpreted their actions. A second result of their taking their, their issues to court was that it exposed their greed, as he suggests in verse 8. He says, you yourselves wrong and defraud your own brothers. You, you do wicked things, you wrong them, and you cheat them. It exposes your greed. The third result of their taking their issues before the court is that it dishonored their position verses 2 through 5, where he, he reminds us, in essence, that the saints have been seated with Jesus Christ on his throne and identified with him in his position as the ruler. And he says there is coming a day when the saints will judge the world. That's the position that we've been given in Christ. What Paul is saying here seems to reflect the return of Jesus Christ when he comes again that we will share with him in judging the world and sitting over it. As it says in Revelation 20 and verse 4, I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. Jesus says regarding the apostles in Matthew 19, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And not only is that true of the twelve apostles, but by extension it seems to be true 
in some sense of every believer. For them to take their brothers to court was to dishonor their position. He says saints are also going to judge the angels. Now this is not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures, only a brief reference here. It's hard to understand exactly what Paul is saying. Is he talking about saints someday judging the holy angels of God? Well, we wonder why would they need to be judged? Are they not always perfectly obedient to their creator? Then is he saying that we will someday have a part in judging the fallen angels and judging demons? That seems to be the better option of the two. It does say that the Lord has not spared the angels that sinned, but has cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Talking there in 2 Peter 2, 4 about the particular angels, but all of the fallen angels will one day face judgment. Perhaps that's what Paul has in mind. But his point is, look, Jesus Christ has given you a position of dignity. You yourself are destined to be a judge. Now why, as one having that position, would you degrade it by taking your issues before the pagans? And then there's a fourth result that he gives for their error. When you do this, Paul says, that is, when you take your case to the court, it defeats your case anyway. You're already defeated when you get there, verse 7. You've already suffered a loss. Oh, yes, I know one of you may win the case and the other lose it, but you have both been diminished spiritually. And therefore you have both had loss of respect and fellowship and your testimony. And so you're already defeated. And so Paul lays out for them what he believes are the disastrous results of the problem that they were having in that city, in that church. Secondly, he lays before them his proposal. He tells them what they can do as an option. The proposal is, in the first place, to settle with arbitration. The last part of verse 5 suggests this. Some of the language in the middle part of the paragraph is a little difficult to translate, not only to say interpret, but what Paul seems to be saying in verse 5 is, look, you can't appoint arbitrators among yourselves. In verse 4, there seems to be a bit of sarcasm. He says, there it seems, that it's better to have even the weakest member of the church settle disputes than to take the issue to the court. Because you're better off with even the weakest one among you setting in judgment rather than taking it out there to the pagans. Now why is that? Because the pagans have no appreciation for the spiritual realities. But what's really behind some of the disputes? And so he says, even the weakest among you could be the arbitrator. So he seems to be saying here, isn't there at least one wise man who can stand up and judge and make a decision between his brethren? But he says in verse 7 in his proposal, suffer loss if necessary. Settle with arbitration, but if that doesn't work, then suffer loss if necessary. I don't think Paul is really saying in verse 7 that uh, we ought to 
have a separate church-related court system. But what he is saying is that the church may appoint mediators who can make declarative judgments. They can't make punitive judgments. But they can declare who's right and wrong and what would be the righteous way to settle it. And he says, even if that doesn't work perfectly, it's better to experience the loss or the wrong that might come out of that, if need be, and to keep harmony in the church and your testimony before the world, rather than taking it to the court. The basic problem that underlies this whole thing is that the Corinthians were demanding their rights, their personal rights, rather than yielding them up to God. Paul speaks about that essentially in Romans chapter 12, where in the middle of that chapter he says, look, don't take vengeance for yourself, but the Lord says, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. What Paul is essentially saying there is, give your rights to God, and let God justify you in his time. If there is to be punishment, if there is to be vengeance, then let the Lord be the one who brings it, not you. Let the Lord take care of your rights for you. How that flies in the face of the culture that we live in today. For if you are a real American, you will demand your rights whether it be on the highway as you're driving, or it be in the court system, or it be in the workplace, you demand what's yours. You've got it coming to you. And if you don't get it, somebody else will. And there's all kinds of other little cliches that people use. But Paul isn't saying here that we ought to lie down and be the rug for everybody either. But he is saying, when it comes to your enforcing your personal rights, just give them to God. And let God bring about your righteousness. Let God vindicate your righteousness. Let God show that you're right in His time. The proposal is, settle with arbitration. Suffer loss if necessary. Now this brings a question to mind. If you're thinking through this chapter with me, you may be asking the question, is it always wrong for a believer to go to court? I mean, I'm talking about the pagan court. Is it always wrong for a Christian to go to court? I believe the answer to that is no. It is not always wrong for a believer to go to court. Charles Swindoll has four helpful guidelines that will direct our heart as we think through the issues that we ourselves face. These are guidelines that I offer to you today, not only for your sake, but for the sake of someone that you might counsel. Sundahl says in the first place, you might go to court when the dispute with a fellow Christian is not related to the local church. Secondly, he says, we might go to court when the motive is not pride and I might insert, or greed, but justice. Thirdly, he says we might go to court 
When the issue does not bring shame to the church of Jesus Christ in the eyes of the world. And fourth, he says we might go to court when you're absolutely confident that it is the will of God and have complete peace in the inner person. Now this is, this is not a moot issue that we're dealing with today. One of our local Christian colleges is being sued by a family, a Christian family in another church, in a church here in the Twin Cities. There are Christians suing Christians. There are people who are facing divorce, some who don't want divorce. What are they to do? How are they to respond? What do you do if you have an accident, let's say, at a brother's house, and in order for his insurance policy to pay off, you have to sue him. I mean, these are issues that people face. Well, these guidelines can help you think through what your response ought to be. It is not always wrong for a believer to go to court. Frankly, I think it ought to be rare. It ought to be extremely rare. But there are times when we have to. You see, what was happening in the church in Corinth, and that which Paul was addressing, was an abuse of lawsuits. So they were simply playing a game in some respects. Taking one another to court almost for entertainment. Or to enforce their personal rights over little petty things that didn't really matter. And that's what Paul is rebuking. And notice how closely he ties this together with immorality. He moves from one right to the other. And in Paul's mind, there is really no distinction between the kind of effect on the testimony of the church between the sinning man who is in the church and the way that they were frivolously taking one another to court. So that brings us to the last part of our paragraph where we deal with the principle. The principle that we started, we started out with, and that is that a Christian is called out of the world to a lifestyle of distinction and holiness. Twice, in verses 1 and 2, Paul uses the word saint. Then later in the chapter, he uses the word sanctified, which is related to the word saint. They all mean to call out, or one who is called out. Paul says that we have been called out of the world with its value system to a lifestyle that is to be different and holy. You notice that he says that no person who is characterized by an unrighteous lifestyle will inherit God's kingdom, that is, will enter into the sphere of salvation. And he gives a list of ten specific lifestyles, the way that people were living in that day and which people live today. But some of these we dealt with last week as Paul listed them in chapter 5. 
Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, that is, those who are sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. This is the first time in, in this context that he's mentioned that word. It is a more specific word than the word fornicators, which refers to any kind of sexual sin outside of marriage. Here in adultery, he's talking about those who have been unfaithful to their marriage vows. He says adulterers will not enter the kingdom of God, nor those who are effeminate, a word that means dainty or luxurious living. And it refers most likely to male prostitutes, which were very common in the city of Corinth because of the pagan rituals that were involved in their, their worship of their false deities. Apparently there were some in Corinth who thought that it was still okay to visit these male prostitutes. He goes on to mention homosexuals, making it very clear what he's talking about. Now I realize that there are those today who are coming back to the Bible and trying to revise interpretations over the last 2,000 years. We're trying to say, yes, that's what it says, but that's not what it means. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible means exactly what it says. That is not an unloving thing to say, it's an honest thing to say. It is to me a great tragedy when there are religious leaders who are coming to the Bible, trying to twist it in order to fit the cultural values of our day. That is wrong, and it is wrong not only before God, but it is wrong to the individuals that they think they are pleasing, because what it does is to give them a false sense of security that their lifestyle is okay, when in fact God condemns it. And that is not a loving thing to do. He mentioned thieves. First time he's mentioned that in this context. And the covetous, that is, those who are greedy, drunkards, those who are practicing addictive kinds of things, whether it be wine, as was the common case in Corinth, or if it be drugs in our day as well. A reviler, that is, those who use their tongues to destroy others. And swindlers, people who are cheaters. That's quite a list, isn't it? And he says, don't be deceived. You see, there was deception at work even in that day, so that people were made to think that these sorts of things were okay. But God says people who do these things will not be saved. They have never entered into the portals of salvation, and their unrighteous lifestyles show this. Does it mean that a Christian can't be a thief? Well, you can't be a thief. He may steal. A Christian can still steal. A Christian can still get drunk. A Christian can do any of these things, I suppose, as an isolated act. But he cannot and he will not do them as a lifestyle. For a lifestyle reflects what the heart is, you see. An act may reveal a flaw in the character. 
an act may reveal a moment of disobedience in a person's life. But when we talk about a lifestyle, we're talking about something else, and that's what Paul is dealing with here. And he says, anyone who is living out an unrighteous lifestyle characterized like these things is not a Christian, has not entered into the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived about this, he says. These things are not normal within the Christian life. He says, something happened to you that made you different. He says, oh yes, you were these things. Some of you did this and some of you did that as a lifestyle before you came to Christ. But something happened to you. Something changed you. He says, you were washed. That is, they were cleansed completely of the stain and the defilement that had been brought on by their past lifestyle. He says, you were washed from that. Not only that, he says, but you were sanctified. That is, you were set apart from sin for God. God gave you a new position before him, a holy position. So that now you can live righteously in his eyes. He says, but you were justified. That means you were declared righteous in God's eyes. God made a legal decision about you. He made a de decree. He cleared you of your guilt before the law. And he says, all of this was done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, with the authority of Christ. Christ himself brought this. It's unquestionable. It's irreversible what he did for you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. He says, how then possibly can you think to go back to the lifestyle that you were a part of? No, he says, you were in the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has made all of this a reality to you. And now if you fall back into your old ways, the Spirit of God is going to be there to convict you of your sin and to bring you back. That's why I'm saying this morning that the distinctive, the point he's making in this, this paragraph is that those of us who are called into Christ's kingdom are called to live with distinction and holiness. There's a certain dignity that befits the position that we have in Jesus Christ and we are to live that out in the world. And to think otherwise is absurd. It's ridiculous. God has called us out from the world society to belong to his new society. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning, whether it be the example of lawsuits, or it be the other potential applications that he mentions in the last part of this text, are we making the choices about our behavior that are consistent with who we are? For you see, we have a choice to make about how we live. The unrighteous do not. They are captivated and enslaved in lifestyles of sin. But something has happened to us. We're different in Jesus Christ, and now we have the ability to choose to obey God. And on the whole, the Christian will. You may fall back now and then as events or occasions in his life 
But on the whole, she will have a lifestyle of obedience to God. What are the decisions that you're making? When an opportunity comes to you to go back to what you were before, are you choosing to say no to that and yes to obedience to Jesus Christ? When the devil comes knocking at your door with a temptation to say, come on, you remember how much fun this was. Can you at that moment by the Spirit of God say, no, I have been called out of that to belong to Jesus Christ and I want my life to be different. What Paul is saying to these people is what he is saying to all of us today. Stop living for things that you have been saved from. Father God, this message cuts across the heart of each one of us. Because all of us in here also were like those Corinthians before we were saved. In one way or another, our lives were styled after sin. And there may be some of us today who have thought that we have been saved because we prayed a prayer sometime or we went forward in a service and there's been no cleansing, no sanctifying work of your spirit and we're not justified. I pray that you would not allow us to continue on deceived if that be the case. But show us exactly what we need to repent of. Show us our guilt that we may bow the knee and truly receive Jesus Christ and find in Him the transformation inside that will make us new people. And Father, for those of us who have done that, and who truly are saints who have been called out, but who have forgotten that we are to live holy lives, distinct from the world, different than our peers, I pray that this might be a reminder, a wake-up call to us today to be holy. Lead us to repentance as well and to renewal of our vows to walk after you in newness of life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.